I'm James Dark, co-founder of Inspire You and Yes, I Will Vote. And welcome to the second episode of Ramona Telling Our Story podcast series. On today's episode, we have Professor AC Grayling, a man who was a key central figure in the People's Vote movement, as well as a man with a plan. Listen out for where he thinks our community ought to be heading next, how we can rejoin, and what lessons we may learn moving forward. Hope you enjoy. So, Professor Grayling, um, welcome and thank you so much for being on um, the Ramona Telling Our Story um, podcast. Bit, t- bit of a tongue-in-cheek um, title, but with um, a view to tell the stories of the main public figures, grassroots figures, um, politicians and so on of those who were campaigning in the People's Vote campaign and the wider um, anti-Brexit slash pro-EU movement um, from the period of the general election backwards through to the referendum, so that period. Um, So thank you very much um, for being on the episode. Um, Merry Christmas, uh, belatedly, and um, Happy New Year. Let's hope um, 2021 is um, a a year uh, of progress um, for those of us in our community and for for everyone. Let's let's hope it uh, improves on the last year, as you just said, actually, it couldn't get too much worse. But um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, I have my brother Jack with me, who you know is going to be the co-host uh, for this episode. So welcome, Jack, uh, to the podcast. Um, so first question, let's um, jump back to the 23rd of June 2016. Um, what were you doing, Professor Grayling, on that day? Were you campaigning? Were you in your office? What were you doing? Were you... Um, did you realize on the day that it was going to be such a momentous day that it was going to be a day almost like a turning point in the UK's history? I was campaigning on that day uh, and voting, of course, on that day. Yep. <laughs> and I had been campaigning for some time before uh, uh, and had been completely confident that, uh, of course, there would be a yes vote to staying in the EU yep. because I simply didn't think that people would be stupid enough to vote otherwise mm. until my confidence was shaken about. Um, uh, 10 days or so before the referendum itself, when I was uh, c- campaigning in Hyde Park, actually, what we were doing was a whole group of us were, were making the, the letters I-N for in uh, and being photographed from a helicopter. And one of the people in the queue next to me was uh, no less than uh, Dominic Grieve. And uh, I said to him, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. And he said, oh, I'm not so sure. Right. He had he had more inside knowledge than I did. Mm-hmm. On that day, by the way, uh, one of the other people in, in the INQs was Stanley Johnson. He of uh, Boris Johnson uh, Association, now getting himself a French passport. Um, people are down on him for that. The fact is he has never been a Brexiter and, it, and has always been quite strongly pro-EU. He himself was a an MEP. He fact. was, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, anyway, that, that's what I was doing on that day. And what I was doing the next day, God, I practically suicidal and <laughs> to pack my bags to leave this damn country, I thought to myself. And then I thought, no, actually, when you look at the numbers, 37% of the electorate, so that's 26% of the population, had mm-hmm. voted to leave. What shocked me in the, in the immediate aftermath of the referendum uh, was two things. Firstly, in the very early hours of, of, of the morning when the votes had come in from Newcastle and things were beginning to look pretty damn grim, um, the, the, the BBC, uh, so I forget who was being the anchor, Dimbleby, being yeah, uh, the anchor man on the BBC, yeah. when, when he looked at the figures, he said, we're out of Europe. Yeah, he did. 
and, and you know, th that kind of thing is incredibly irresponsible, incredibly irresponsible to make a judgment like that on public broadcasting, setting a tone and a, and a mood, because I think it had something to do with the fact that Parliament never, has never to this day debated the question, should we, given that this was an advisory referendum, should we take the advice of 37% of the electorate, a quarter of the populace, to do such a huge and dramatic thing as to leave the EU? Never debated. It was just assumed from, from the minute that the, the numbers looked the way they did in the early hours of 24th of, of June, that, uh, that, that the whole story was over. And, and that, you know, that is, when you think about it, absolutely disgusting. Mm. We, um, we had a question. Jack, did you have a question on that? Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, I'm assuming lots of people did, but did you stay up and, and watch, watch as the results came in? Um, what was your reaction when you saw the exit poll? How did, how did it make you feel? I'm sure it made lots of people feel pretty grim. Yeah, pretty grim. Um, you know, that, that, that started to uh, look how things were going. So I, I did get a couple of hours sleep and hoping, you know, that it was just a nightmare. We just, yeah. I'd wake up and, and find that we had a 67% majority for staying in as we did yeah. back in 1975. Uh, and of course, when I was woken up um, by somebody commiserating with me, <laughs> I thought, oh my God, you know, so it was a bad day, a really, really bad, bad day. Yeah. I think for me, um, that morning, I remember going to bed, as, as, you, as you said, very confident. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I can't speak for Jack, perhaps Jack can maybe say as well, but I wasn't a sort of a strong pro-EU person at that stage. I was very much just a case, it was for me, it was a case of, this seems like the right path forward staying in. I mean, and that's kind of my, it wasn't until I saw the result that I had an, like an actual emotional response to it. It wasn't until I saw leave a friend of mine actually a, a humanist who ran exit humanist with me um texted me it was just a four letter word at like 5 a.m <laughs> um and i remember just looking at it and being like oh that's not good <laughs> and it, immediately i was like oh actually i'm i'm affected by this emotionally i didn't think i would be like um and it from that i think jack and i we had a similar path didn't we into politics really which was that that shock and that and that sense of that that almost like an awakening of I'm actually, I'm, I'm a pro-EU, I'm pro-Europe. I didn't realize I was until, until that moment. Um, and I, having had these conversations with literally hundreds of um, campaigners and people that have spent the last four years fighting this, I think a lot of people can empathize with that feeling of, didn't know I was so pro-EU until, until, we, until we'd voted to leave. And, and it was at that point that I felt, well, now's the time to get stuck in and see if we can um, change the course of the, of the country. Um, so, yeah, then, I mean, the, the, the next question was, J Jack and I, our, our sort of roots really was, um, it happened, the vote happened, and then we, we, we set Inspire up a little bit later in 2017, but we were, we were sort of conscious that, is, is Brexit an absolute inevitability at this stage? So 24th of June, we were like, okay, it's definitely happening, this is really bad. But then it got to like August, September, October, sort of went into 2017, and we start to feel like, well, They've got no clue what they're doing. There's no sense of what Brexit is. There's no destination. There's no plan. It's just empty rhetoric. This is an absolute farce. It's farcical. And we were obviously reading your article about all the stuff about the, the electorate and the fact that it was advisory. And we were reading all the arguments and we just felt our side 
has all the winning arguments here. Like, how can you argue against any of this stuff? I just, it didn't, it felt like we were moving forward to something that, that was going to wreck the country. It was obvious at that stage. Um, so I wanted to ask you, at what stage, was it literally the day after? But for us, it wasn't. But at what stage was the idea that Brexit was not inevitable come about in your in your mind? Was you, did, did you feel the very next day that we're going to fight this, it's not going to happen? Or did it, did it grow gradually over the months? No, I mean, I mean, after the initial shock and, and upset uh, during the course of the morning of the 24th, that's what I thought. We've got to stop this. We, okay. we, you know, we've got to deal with this. This is just completely and utterly crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, in in connection with what, what we say about what happened over the next, uh, you know, three years of campaigning to try to stop it, a really, really key point all the way through is this: that in November of 2019, so just over a year ago, just just before in the run up to the general election of December 20, uh, um, 2019. Yeah, we came this close to stopping Brexit. This close, we really, really came close. Yeah, and you know, the, the the last few years has been a chapter of, of accidents resulting from the very, very third-rate nature of politicians who are in positions of uh, some kind of responsibility. I mean, look, here is the track record. Firstly, you know, we have a. Uh, um, the, the, the Prime Minister who, to shut up the right wing of the Tory party, agreed that if he won the 2015 election, uh, he would uh, um, allow a referendum. That was a really bad mistake. I, I know that a lot of very senior uh, Conservative politicians tried to dissuade him. I can barely mention his name. It was just a stupid thing to do. Yeah. Contemporaneously, however, the Labour Party um, picked Ed Miliband. Uh, Ed Miliband himself is okay, but he made a, a bad mistake. And the bad mistake was that he changed the rules for the election of the party leadership, which is what let Corbyn in. And Corbyn and that and the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party have very, very seriously let this, this country down. So it's the far left of the Labour Party and the far right of the Conservative Party acting together for different motivations, but who, who have been a big part of the problem. So we had this wretched referendum. The referendum was very badly uh, designed. Uh, it, it was, you know, a sort of lazy expectation that, uh, of course, the country would be stupid enough to leave the EU, so they didn't put in a threshold requirement or a supermajority requirement. Uh, they uh, buckled to the far right who didn't want 16-year-olds, who didn't want EU citizens, who were trying to stack the cards in their favour as much as possible. Yep. They didn't do anything about protecting the public from the, the what, what should by now, I think, have been obvious, which is the very malign influence of how social media can be used to manipulate people, yep. secretly micro-targeting uh, you know, groups who, who, if you swung them just enough, could, could swing the whole story, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Yep. Then, if the opposition had not agreed to the general election of uh, December 2019, if they'd not agreed, we would have got our second referendum and we would have won it. And it was the bad mistake of Joe Swinson and Jeremy Corbyn and, and, and his group of people who, um, you know, out of, I don't know what it was, macho or optimism or something, mm. agreed to a general election. And our, you know, you're going to excuse the French here, but our crap uh, electoral system on, on a minority of the vote lets in a huge majority of, of Tories who can, continue with the trashing of, of our country and, and the Brexit uh, project. All that, that talk about, are we going to have a referendum, the people will decide, the people, et cetera, et cetera. Where have the people been 
ever since uh, June of 2016. Have we had a, a say on the deal? Has the deal been put to the public? Have we been offered anything concrete on, on which we can, you know, have our say? As, as Jacob Rees-Mogg himself said, let's have a second referendum. Yeah, blah, blah, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, all, all the way through our system and a, a group of very, very poor politicians uh, between them have, have just absolutely pulled the plug on, on, on the country yeah. and we're in a terrible situation. But that is the reason for fighting. And I think, as we'll see in a later part of this discussion, perhaps, that there is a way back. Yeah, could we are going to we are going to come on to a lot of that, what you just said. Um, we'll try not to repeat ourselves. Um, just a quick follow up on that, though. Did you even the day after the referendum, did you have a sense that we were living in a in a period where our politicians weren't up to the task of defending the country and, and, and its interests? Did you did you understand at that stage? I, certainly I didn't, but perhaps you did. I don't know. Did you understand at that stage that we were we were dealing with a political class that maybe just weren't prepared to put the national interest first, particularly maybe within the Conservative Party. A lot of there, there were some brave conservatives who put their career on the line and now they're no longer MPs. But there were I remember um, Ken Clark saying, but there are still far too many who understand Brexit to be an absolute monstrosity, but who just it's an easy life. We keep our mouth shut. We keep our seats. Did you did, did you have a sense at that stage back in 2016 that we, we basically have a political class that were, that were going to go on to fail us? No, I, I didn't. I still, I hoped that our political class would, would pull us back from the brink. I, yeah. I hoped that there, were, there would be enough people. And look, you know, I, I'm not condemning absolutely all 650 MPs. I mean, I think probably, you know, 20% of them are good, serious, earnest people. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Caroline Lucas and perhaps Dominic Reed himself and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Lamy you know, in the Labour Party. I mean, Anne Subri and the Conservatives. There were people on all sides of the House who were against Brexit and who, who were sensible about it and were warning. And what we saw, you know, between the, um, the 2017 election and the 2019 election, from the, when Theresa May lost her majority, we had a hung parliament. And, and the Conservative government hung on because they had DUP support. Yeah. The DUP, the, the Democratic Unionist Party, which yes. supported the Tories into, into getting rid of the Union, because we've now got a border between Northern Ireland. You know, I mean, it is irony upon irony. It is, anyway. yeah, and sad oh. as well, but yeah. We had that hung parliament. And in that hung parliament, we saw parliamentarians of real worth uh, you know, fighting and fighting and bringing us very, very close indeed to stopping it. Some of those people, David Lammy and Dominic Reeve and, and Caroline Lucas and others, the people I've mentioned, brought us very, very close. And if it hadn't been for the folly of, of the Lib Dems and Labour and Greenton election, you know, the, we, we would be okay now. We would be focusing on COVID and dealing with it properly because we would probably have a sensible Prime Minister and Cabinet. Mm. But, but I mean, that, that is a situation, by the way, you know, when we, if and when we get to talk a bit about um, proportional representation. We will uh, actually, pe yeah. People's fears about um, hung parliaments and so on. I will say, look at that parliament. That yeah. is what parliament should be. Indeed. Every single measure that the executive brings forward into the uh, parliament should stand or fall on its individual merits. Not because you've got an automatic majority that you just whip through a yeah. bunch of lobby fodder, don't even bother to read the bills and so on, just placeholders, you know. Yeah. Anyway.
Yeah, so, yeah you, I can get going. <laughs> you, I know you can, and and it's Jack and I are likewise. We're we're very very um, passionate advocates of um, proportional representation, or at least electoral reform, um, certainly. Um, but yeah, we will come on to a lot more of that. So Jack, you've got a question. Yeah. Um, in the in the well, over the last few years, certainly from twenty sixteen till now, I would say we've probably built up the largest most active most passionate pro-eu community uh, anywhere in the world and arguably in arguably one of the most unlikely places because obviously we voted to leave we obviously voted to leave the eu um in your mind what would you say a remainer is um and what would you say um you know how how did such a love for the eu which which to be honest you know, it wasn't so visible before, become so visible and so prominent here. Well, look, you've got to remember that, that any sizable group of people is a whole set of overlapping minorities. They're not all of one mind. So I, I imagine that Remainers now, we're rejoiners, um, that will include people who see the uh, economic, the huge economic advantages of, of being part of the single market and, and the customs union. There will be people who love the idea of uh, the easy travel, the fact that you can work all over Europe, the fact you could live anywhere, retire anywhere, fall in love with anybody and there won't be any problems about nationality and so on. And, and then there will be people who, in addition to those things, or even perhaps as an alternative to those things, see the EU as, as an historic attempt at creating a, a, a huge cooperative program for peace. Now, if you think about it, the history of Europe is racked with, with wars. You know, Europeans have been murdering and killing one another in dreadful wars for centuries, centuries. And the Second World War was so awful and so destructive. I mean, I say to people, if you want an argument for the EU, just go on YouTube and look at a one minute or two minutes footage of Europe in 1945 at the destroyed cities, the millions of refugees and displaced persons at the, at the concentration camps and the, the, the great imaginative bold leaders uh, after 1945 who said, that's it, we just simply cannot be doing this to ourselves any longer. And, and, they, and they at last listened to a message, a message which had been put out repeatedly over the previous centuries. Tom Paine in the late 18th century, Cobden and Bright, remember them, the free traders from the middle of the 19th century, were all saying, if you want peace, make absolutely inextricable trading relationships between nations. They cannot go to war with one another. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the whole concept of, of a, a single market is also actually, and mainly, the concept of peace. Mm. I mean, this is incredibly imaginative. Imagine Frenchmen and Germans who've for, for you know, so long had been at war with one another, coming together and saying, right, let's put that behind us and, and create something. This is the, there's nothing comparable in the whole of history to what Europe is trying to do. Yeah. And, and you look at the world today, there's the United States of America with or without Trump, there's China and there's the EU, three great centers of power and influence in our world. The United States of America and China are both still back in the 19th century because they think that economic and military power are the two things that give you real influence in the world. The EU is all about soft power. It's all about influence. It's all about aid. It's all about 
you know, uh, uh, cooperation and progress. And that has to be the future, because if that isn't the future, the whole world is going to suffer. Yeah. And in fact, when you look around the world, sorry, I, I know I'm starting to lecture now, but I'll end on this point. If you look around the world, in South America, in Southeast Asia, all the nations in those regions are trying to recreate a kind of an EU in their own uh, areas because they see the value and the significance of it. Yeah. It's only, you know, it's only the Brexit cabal. And uh, look, you know, we have to acknowledge that there is a group of people on the right and on the left who have been anti-Europe and who have lied and cheated and they've manipulated, uh, you know, a third of the electorate to, to vote leave by, by a lot of, you know, misinformation and misleading and stuff. So when I talk about Brexiters, I mean the ERG, the, the UKIP is, you know, yeah. the Brexit party. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. They have got a very, very clear idea of what they want. They don't care a damn about peace and progress in Europe or in the world or the future. They care about their pockets now. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why they wanted Brexit was they wanted to turn the UK, and actually they didn't even care about the UK. They wanted to turn England, England. into a low tax haven, you know, sort of low, low cost uh, um, offshore tax haven is really what they want. Yeah. And, you know, and they're in public about it. Jacob Rees-Mogg repeatedly said, uh, if, if we're going to have, you know, um, maternity leave and, and environmental protections and blah, blah, this costs money, it's taxes. So get rid of all that, get out of the EU, scrap all the, all the that, and then we can have low taxes. Now, with these low taxes, there's no money for a national health service, there's no money for good state schools, you know, there's no money for the environment, etc. And that's perfect for people like Rhys Mogg and others. You know, if you're a rich person and you've got an income of several million a year and half of it goes on tax, you feel it. If yeah. you've got 30,000 or 40,000 a year and, you know, some percentage of it goes on tax, you don't feel it so much. Now, they're the ones who are really interested in the whole tax story. And his, you know, the, the famous book that his dad wrote, I mean, let's be honest, it wasn't hard to spot that Jacob Rees-Mogg is an extremist. I mean, he is an extremist and the ERG are full of extremists. They have maybe one or two who aren't so much, but yeah. I mean, that's, so this actually, if I just bring us back to what a Remainer is, I was wondering, do you think, to what extent was the, is the Remain community pro-EU, pro-Europe as opposed to pro-EU, anti-Brexit as a policy or just anti-populist? I've met people who sort of tick all of those and some who just tick one, say. And I, I know, for instance, that my, Jack and I often use our parents as an example. They voted Brexit. They were very sh strong, uh, uh, defensive, weren't they, in the, in the first few months about their vote. Um, and over time, actually, they kind of went through all of that. They kind of developed a sort of they weren't they didn't like Johnson, didn't, didn't, didn't like the populism. Then they didn't really like Brexit as a policy. Then all of a sudden they started to really like the idea of Europe. And then by the end, now my mum and my dad are sharing all sorts of pro-EU memes and things. So they've gone the full sort of spectrum. But I wonder, is is the pro-EU community similar to the sort of pro-Biden community? Is it is it just progressives? Um, who care about the world that you just described, the world of the EU and soft power, or, or is the pro-EU community just people who really dislike the ERG? Uh, well, look, I mean, you're dead right to, to um, identify those categories of people. Uh, and there will be people who do fall just into one category. Yeah. Um, and, and almost certainly there will be people who, if they do fall into more than one category, and most will, will nevertheless have one category as the more dominating category. Yeah. True. Yeah. So I, I, I grant all that. But 
the, the, the point about, about Europe stroke EU is that there's not a lot of difference between those two. And all the things that you might like about Europe, like places you have your holidays in and so forth, and, and you know, associations with the EU as a, as a project, it, it, the, the, there's, quite, there's quite a lot of connection between them and quite a lot of feeling that our access to Europe and enjoyment of Europe and our valuing of European culture and music and art and beautiful European cities and what have you, has something to do with the EU. So it's a more focused thing, I think. You know, the, the, the Biden constituency, I mean, you know, I think, I think you're dead right that, that Biden's supporters have been a very, very broad church. Mm, yeah. I, I think the, the focus of, war, of worship, so to speak, for the uh, Remainer Rejoiner Church is narrower. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I mean, if we had a bit more time, I, I would love to pick your brain on on that on that what you just said about the EU and Europe being very similar, because I think there's a lot of Eurosceptics who would very harshly disagree with you on that. Um, and I've had lots of discussions about why I'm actually pro EU as opposed to just pro Europe, and it's still one of those things that I. I'm still sort of like trying to tease out on myself a little bit, but we we'll, we'll move on just because there's a little. Can yeah. I say one thing about that though? I'm, I mean, because I, I think one has to dig down into the sort of layers of thinking about this in Europe itself, about the European project and what it was that enabled the, the sort of founders of the whole EEC or iron and steel community and then the EEC and EU in yeah. Europe itself, what enabled them to do it? Now, I remember back in, um, uh, 2004, five, around about then, just before the Czech Republic uh, joined the EU, Václav Havel had uh, each year for several years a conference at Prague Castle on the European Union under the title European Values to talk about what it was that, that motivated the um, the kind of sentiment behind the EU, not, not just the economic arguments and so on, but, but the, you know, the more cultural and, and uh, um, uh, sort of supernatural and national arguments. And I, I, I was invited to contribute to those. And, and I remember um, you know, thinking a lot about what it was that lay behind the sense, not just history, not just the history of wars, the fact that the, the wars of Europe are internecine wars, they're like, you know, sort of civil war writ large in a way, because we're all so much kin. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing that is really striking when you dig into it and think about it, and therefore it was the thing that I, I spoke about at this conference, was the fact of values, uh, you know, of, and I mean this perfectly seriously, because this is a, a, a term that people float about and, and, and they don't give real content to. But you think about the music, the philosophy, the science, the literature, the painting, the sculpture, the, the, the roots in, in um, Greek and, and Roman antiquity, the, the fact that the, 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 the very vocabularies of the major European languages uh, are drawn from the same root, the, the, the fact that there are, you know, again, we, we think about um, uh, the, the lack of homogeneity within any one population. But, but there are populations of people across Europe who are closer to one another, more in sympathy with one another's outlook and values than with people in their own country. Almost any academic or intellectual or writer or anything in France or Italy or, or Germany is a more familiar being and, and, and friend of, of somebody who's in that world than somebody who's in the world of say horse breeding or, or um, 
you know, um, engineering. They will have commonalities with horse breeders and engineers elsewhere in Europe as well. Do you see what I mean? I mean, there are these contacts, but they run very, very deep. And it's that actually which promotes this sense of, of a European unity, a European collectivity, a European purpose, which lies underneath all the talk about uh, the single market and trying to make it work and trying to homogenize um, you know, standards across Europe and to have a common currency. All those things are uh, mechanical. There are lots of things wrong with Europe that have to be put right, but this is because it's a work in progress. It's a gigantic imaginative work in progress. The thing that really matters is that underlying cultural sentiment. Yeah, I actually remember the, 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 the campaigning phrase that we were using straight after the, um, the vote really, before we got to the sort of people's vote uh, era was remain and reform. People like the idea of Europe's not perfect. It's an imperfect institution but it's unprecedented in its scope and what it's trying to achieve. And it's so big and unwieldy, it's bound to have things to iron out. And so we were always using the phrase remain and reform. And we still think that, that the EU is, needs major reforms. Um, but no, that's a really interesting conversation. I would love to have a longer one about that because I think that's really interesting. But um, we've got quite a few more to get through. So I'll, 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 I'll move on um, to the next question, which is, um, what would you say, I'll, I'll use an analogy. So like Jack and I, big football fans, big Man United fans, at the end of the season, we always, my brother, my dad, my other brother, we always chat through what were the big turning points in the season? What was the big VAR decision? The, the goal line clearance? What was the, you know, the, the score that, that, that changed our season? Um, what would you say were the, were, were the big VAR moments in, in that period from the referendum through to the general election? What, if there was one or two things that if we were to just tweak would have gone our way and we'd be living in a, in a Remain UK now? Well, the single most important one, I think, was the um, agreement by the opposition parties to a general election in general election. November, December 2019. That was absolutely the, the worst decision that could have been made and that sold the pass. That, that, that was the Spartans at uh, Thermopylae giving up and going home, you know, and, and that was it. Um, but before then, the, the, it's just a pixelation of, of, uh, of, of little details which were accumulating and accumulating and accumulating in favour of Remain. Lots of them. I mean, you know, for the, for it's a sort of more personal thing that, that, that in a way it is a kind of national campaigning thing. But I remember on one of the million marches in London, okay, I was talking to a policewoman who, who was uh, on the route there and, and she was saying what a difference that this march or any other march on any other course that she'd ever been on, what a big difference there was between the Remainer marches. They were peaceful, they were good humoured, um, people were picking up litter. I mean, you know, that kind of sums it up, the fact that they were picking up litter uh, on the way. All, the, all that was best and most positive about uh, the, the effort, people coming out, you know, old folks who'd never been on a demonstration before, there was that, there was a real sense that, as Jack said earlier, in fact, a lot of people, and, and like you, you yourself, indeed, uh, James, talking about waking up and realizing that this was, we were about to lose something valuable if we didn't act, if we didn't do something about it. And that was the sentiment there. And, and it was that, that sense of, of an in, increasing accumulation of, of um, you know, pro-EU sentiment, which 
would have carried us through and won us that second referendum that, you know, let's think again about this, if only we hadn't had that election. So that is the, the great moment. Yeah, the one big one. Okay, thank you. Jack, did you have next question? How did we do things different to, you know, what happened pr prior to the referendum? Did we improve? You know, did we make any changes? Um, did we did we learn any lessons? If we did, you know, what were the what were the lessons that we learned? You know, did we make any changes? If you if you imagine yourself into the boots of, of an historian in fifty or hundred years time, looking back uh, at this period in the. 2016, the run-up to 2016, what has happened since. Of course, it is a very brief moment. You know, th this is, the 2016 to now is the period 1939 to 1943. So this war isn't over, okay? This is, you know, we're in the middle of things still, actually. Uh, and this is important for what we, we say later about, about what we do. But if, if you, just for example, were to read the history of, of um, the years 1939, 1943, and you look at all the, the um, lessons that were being learned and applied and mistakes made and, and what have you in that time, you see that in a very short space of time when there's an emergency on, you do make a lot of mistakes. You do learn a lot of things on the hoof. And in a, in a situation like this one, where a lot of grassroots uh, organizations and then you know, metropolitan organizations and political organizations are all trying to get going. And, and, and there was a whole babel of them. I mean, we weren't a single unified campaign. There were lots of, of sort of fellow traveler campaigns, as it were, that, that got together. And indeed, uh, in the usual way of things, human, there was a lot of infighting. So there were people who wanted to organize a, a great march in London. Uh, on a certain date in March, and then other people who were organizing one for June, and they didn't want to have the one in March because it would get in the way of the one for June, and you know, all that kind of thing. All going on because it was all very, very new, very organic. It was bubbling up in, in response to a situation of emergency. Therefore, one thing that we've learned from it is that what we do now uh, in our campaign to rejoin the EU, and there is, there is, there, there is a crucial stage to getting there, which we'll talk about in a bit, really has to be a, a, a much more unified and a more organized um, federal uh, endeavor. And it has to be federal rather than a single endeavor because I think it's rather good having a number of different voices in, in the debate. But yeah, they could be cooperating better than they did. And yeah. that was one thing well, that, that did, didn't help, even though we came so close to stopping it despite the lack of, of uh, um, overall cooperation. But, but that is a lesson that we need to learn from it. I have a quick follow-up, if that's right, Jack, for this one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. One of the um, things that Jack and I in our campaigning um, found almost impossible to know how to deal with was this this new idea. I mean, I don't know how new it is, but certainly Dominic Cummings seemed to be, it was the Steve Bannon, Dominic Cummings view that if you just throw out, if you just saturate the debate with half-truths, the other side spend all their time having to debunk. And that's, that's that. That takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. Um, and by the time you finish debunking one, they've already thrown out four more. How, how do campaigners who are still based very much in evidence and reason and rationality and all the things that, that we Remainers think we stand for, how do we campaign against that? I, I haven't yet seen, I know Biden's just won against Trump and maybe that is, we can maybe look at how, how he's done it there, but I still feel like what we were doing too often was trying to 
use our rationality and our critical thinking to debunk the, the just often just plain lies or half truths that were coming from and Cummings and I think um, Steve Baker and others have literally said it's hilarious how often you guys fall for this trick. All Cummings does is throw out a statistic, a number, 350 million for the NHS or something, and then you spend a week trying to debunk it. By that time, all that's um, permeated in the news and stuff is money to the NHS, and that's what people hear. So it seems like we're up against a really deceitful kind of anti-politics campaigning style, mm. and I don't think we yet have worked out how fully to address that. Have you got any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think you've, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. You know, it is a universal truth, um, and, and, and it is a lesson that we always seem to learn too late, that, yeah. that, that the bad guys uh, uh, always have an edge over the good guys, okay? They always do. So um, what, what, what we have to do in response, I think, is, is to recognize that you need to have clear, direct messaging, and you've got to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Mm. And, and you, you, you can't think uh, of your main um, thrust as being showing up the, uh, the, the others for the deceits and the falsehoods and the misleading statements and so on. That has to be done, of course, but as a side issue, it's, it's got to be, it's got, mustn't be the main thrust of the campaign. Main thrust of the campaign is to articulate a message and drive it home and, and get people to see it. Because unfortunately, you know, the, the old Daniel Kahneman thing about thinking fast and slow, you know, most people are fast thinkers in the sense that yep. they see the headline, they don't read the article underneath it. And, and therefore it's got to be about the headlines. And this, I think, also needs to be grasped as well, that we have to get to grips with the way in which social media has potentiated what the bad guys can do. So we, we, we all know that micro-targeting and uh, you know, getting people into bubbles and feeding them conspiracy type stories uh, is a very, very effective way of, of harnessing the energies of in just enough people to tip things because elections and referenda, especially in our kind of system, yeah. always depend upon very small numbers. If you can move those small numbers, then, then you can win. We've got to do something about that. And I think in our reform, generally, things like foreign ownership of, of tabloid press, uh, the micro-targeting, secret yeah. micro-targeting on social media, they should be outlawed. Yeah. I was going to say, would you say that the, the issues around social media, particularly Facebook, um, I know that I, Jack and I, we often share a lot of Carol Cadwallader's stuff on this. Mm. Um, would you say that's something that grassroots can um, have any influence of, or do you think that governments and institutions have to change the way that these models actually work where particularly i don't know if you did you watch the documentary on uh facebook no. about how facebook monetized basically deceit um that seems to be i don't know if a single nation like the uk has it got the power to actually take on facebook i think probably the eu does maybe america does but could could could, could me or you could the grassroots or could even just the uk could, does that have do we have enough power on our own to actually influence that? Or does it need to be top down from something like the EU? Yeah. So there are two parts to your question there. What One is uh, what, what can people at the grassroots level do about this? Yeah. And the other is, is there a way forward for any kind of national or international effort? Yeah. On the grassroots level, it's a question of fighting fire with fire. You know, um, if just so long as, as these techniques are being used on social media, we have to respond in kind. 
not, not in kind in the sense that we mislead and lie and deceive as well, but try to make use of, of social media to counteract that as much as possible and to get the yeah. positive message out. So that, that would be, you know, that, that's the obvious thing to say about that. The much less obvious, the more difficult thing is, how do you control these vast and incredibly powerful um, you know, institutions, which is what Facebook and Twitter and all these things are now? Uh, it, it, the, the, the really worrying thing is that what one doesn't want to do is to introduce international censorship. But we do want incredibly effective post-facto remedy, so, so that if people do put stuff out there which is false and misleading, they can really have their wrists slapped big time. I mean, you know, millions of dollars of, of fines repeatedly. But, but also, and, and this is the key thing, it seems to me, the two things that would really control misuse of social media are first, no micro-targeting. So everybody can see what's out there and can call it out if it's false. The trouble with micro-targeting is that if you, if you just go to selected groups of people and you mislead them, other people don't see that you're doing it and therefore they can't be challenged. So that's number one. And the, the second thing is anonymity. I mean, anonymity has polluted uh, uh, social media. There are people who say anonymity is important for whistleblowers and, and, for, you know, and so forth. And it, if you can't be anonymous, then you're shut up. Frankly, that is a price better worth paying than what we have at the moment, which is social media is the biggest and the most misleading lavatory wall in history with all the rubbish on it that, that there is. Get rid of anonymity, get rid of that. So what would you say, if you were speaking to um, pro-EU groups around Europe, what would you say to them um, have been the major learning or the major lessons that, that they can learn from our, our successes and our failures? If you were talking to those fighting Marine Le Pen or Five Star in Italy, what would you say to them as advice as how to defeat the Eurosceptics in their countries? Well, they now have a, a very powerful weapon, which is the, the mess that the UK has made of itself over Brexit. And they can cite that. Uh, you know, we've seen um, polling in, in the EU over the last couple of years, support going up for the EU as a result of people being horrified by what's uh, happened on this side of the channel. Yeah. So, so that, that's a very useful for them. Uh, a useful thing for them to have a look at it and learn the lessons from it there. But the, the idea of um, uh, ensuring that the positives about e EU membership, I mean, Italy is the one country, I suppose, now where question marks uh, arise. Interestingly, in places like Poland and Hungary, which are in bad odour with the EU because of their stuff on uh, justice and uh, human rights and yeah. Um, there's still quite a lot of support for membership of the EU because, of course, they're net gainers from, yeah. from EU membership. But uh, um, Italy and, to some extent, uh, Greece, although Greece has reconciled with now, felt the strains. Spain has as well, but Spain has always been, you know, very uh, signed up. What they can do is, is they can say there is more, much more to the argument for the EU than just economics, that the economic uh, considerations are entirely technical ones. That is, they're, they're about uh, getting the regulatory framework of the single market right and getting the Eurozone right. Euro was introduced too early, so it's going to be a bumpy ride. But in the long view of history, it's been a relatively short period. After all, when did the Euro come in? 2002 or something like that. <clears throat> so patience and, and uh, uh, commitment and talking up the positives, that's, that's obvious. Would you say that the, just as a quick follow-up, would you say that 
they should perhaps the thing that we didn't do too well was to to make the emotive case do you, do you think that they have because of their history particularly around world war ii um so many of the countries were occupied um there's two questions in one here that i had written down one was sort of would you say that the uk is uniquely susceptible to euro skepticism because of our our empire, then the fact that we, you know, we we stood alone in inverted commas, the whole sort of argument that we were the victors of World War II, we weren't occupied, we weren't humbled in the same way. That's the sort of the first part. And the second part is, in, in that case, would you say that, say, if you were a, a pro-EU, you speak, you're given a talk to a pro-EU community in Spain or in Italy, you can always go back to World War II and talk about the disasters of World War II, which, which we can't do in the UK so much. Yes, so, so that, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, when I talk about talking up the positives, in addition to the economic arguments, I mean exactly that, the sort of sentimental, yeah. the, the arguments for sentiment about value, about European values, right. yeah. uh, about the great peace project, and about uh, recognizing the scars of history and learning from them. Yes, so I absolutely agree with that. The point that you make about the you know, British attitudes in this respect, we need to get our history straight. We were allied to the countries that won the Second World War, namely Russia and the United States of America. Exactly. Uh, and it's a, you know, that's a slightly more accurate way than saying we, we won it. Mm -hmm. Secondly, in 1940, when we were, quote unquote, on our own, we were on our own with a huge empire, with Canada and Australia and South Africa and, and India and, and, and all that. And if, if there had been an invasion, if the uh, Wehrmacht had crossed the channel in 1940, uh, Churchill and his government would have gone to Canada and would have uh, been like the Free French in London, you know, they would have been the British government in, in Canada. And eventually, um, you know, there would have been a, a D-Day in 1944 and they would have come back again. So there was never any well, you know, sort of risk. And the minute, the minute that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the Second World War was won by the Allies, even though it took another few years actually to get it done, yeah. because it was a war of productive capacity. And with the United States of America in the war, it's inevitable that eventually the Allies would win it. So um, the United States of America manufactured planes and ships and tanks, and the Russians spilt blood. And we were an aircraft carrier for 1944. Yeah. So really it's about the UK just being obsessed with a version of history that is quite warped. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I mean I've I've written about this so much on my um, on my platforms. Um, but another no, that's a point to make about that, James. Sorry to interrupt you, but another point to make uh, about that is that people forget how very implicated we were in Europe for most of our history mm. until uh, uh, after um, the uh, Dutch Wars of the late seventeenth century and the French Wars uh, and Spanish. Uh, was the beginning of the 18th century. We were very, very much part of it. In fact, parts of France were parts of, of England, mm. you know, uh, and indeed I think, well, when did um, the very last bit of, of uh, continental Europe, apart from Gibraltar, that uh, Britain gave up? And now of course, Gibraltar is part of Schengen. And it is, yeah. Single market and so on. So, you know, <laughs> talking about how diminished the United Kingdom is relative to Brexit. But uh, was uh, Charles II sold um, some part of France to, to Louis XIV? Okay. Like, with Boulogne or somewhere like that. Uh -huh. It was, you know, Mary had Calais written on her heart and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that was uh, 1673. 
This was in the late 17th century. So we were very much part of it. We were, yeah. And obviously, obviously, the Napoleonic Wars and you know, we, had, we had soldiers marching all over Europe at all times of, of European history, yeah. Um, very interesting um, point, which again, I would love to speak more about that because there's just so much to unpack there. But um, So Jack, do you, do you have a next question? Yeah. Um, where would you say, where would you say we are now, in your view, in your opinion, uh, as a community, as a country, you know, what, what are we as an entity now? Well, I, I think we are more divided than ever. Uh, I think in Northern Ireland, uh, Scotland, Wales are less, you know, signed up for the union. Uh, with, with England, are more skeptical about the English and, and uh, you know, England Toryism. It's inevitable, I, I think, that these stresses, uh, the divisions uh, are going to deepen rather than be healed. I cannot see Labour winning Scotland back or, or Johnson and the Tories winning the unionist argument uh, after this debacle. Mm. The Scots have got a real opportunity to be back in the EU first. I mean, it's inevitable, I think, that all, all the nations, all, all the national entities of the British Isles will be back in the EU probably sooner rather than later. And there's definitely a quick route back in, which I will talk about in a bit. Mm. But um, we're, we're more divided. And within England itself, we're more divided than ever. You know, Disraeli back in the 19th century talked about the two nations, meaning the sort of middle and upper classes and the working classes. That's always been the case about England. There's that division, there's the North-South division, but now there is also the European uh, Little Englander uh, division, which is bitter and, and, you know, and very deep. So we're very divided and it's gonna take a very long time, whatever happens, to bring people back together again uh, uh, within England. The Welsh, the Scots, the, the Northern Ireland, well, Northern Ireland, if, if it does uh, join with the rest of Ireland, that's now, more of a possibility than it has been for a long time. They won't have as much difficulty as England is going to have in um, getting itself back together again. So division, basically, there's a long road ahead. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and just to sort of follow on from Jack's a little bit, what would you say the pro-EU community, the Remainer community, the Ramona community, whatever community um, name you'd like to give us, what would you say, because I'm in this community and I'm conflicted now about where I spend my campaigning energy because there are other things that I really care about that I want to spend time talking about. Particularly, the two other ones are the climate emergency, which is this massive existential threat, arguably the most serious thing to have ever um, dawned on hu humanity, um, which sounds over the top, but it's really not. Um, and the other one is, is electoral reform and moving our democracy forward fit for the 21st century. Um, should Remainers be campaigning and spending all of their campaigning energy on rejoining and on the European question, or should we split it and focus more on, say, the climate emergency and electoral reform? Because I think our community is made up largely, in my opinion, of people who also want to fight on those two fronts particularly as well. What would, what, what would you say? Okay, so the happy news is that they are all fortunately connected. Okay, because yeah. the, the argument that I want to make about rejoining the EU is that we have to do it uh, through electoral reform. Okay. So here is a scenario 
which would have us back in the EU in six or seven years time, okay? Here's the scenario. It may be improbable, but it is not impossible. It's perfectly conceivable that all the opposition in this country combines and works together on a common platform for electoral reform. And they do this seriously. And by seriously, I mean the Labour Party has to suspend that clause in its constitution, which requires it to field a candidate in every constituency, because it would have to uh, not field candidates in constituencies where the Greens or the Lib Dems or Plaid or SNP have a better chance of winning. So they've got to be really grown up and self-denying about this in order to make a proper common platform. The Greens, the LDs and the um, implied have already agreed on a common platform. SNP is already committed to this anyway. So it, it is Labour. So we've got to work on Labour to do this. And if there was a serious common platform, remember that at the last election, the Tories got 43% of the vote. All the other opposition parties together got 57%, 54% for LDs, Greens, Labour, and so on. So there is a majority, a non-Tory majority in this country. And the time has come for electoral reform because people can see a whopping 80-seat majority on a minority of the vote, giving 100% of power to the current executive is just simply unacceptable. And this is an argument that can now be won. Yep. Get electoral reform, get, get, get a, a, you know, a, an opposition coalition into power, committed to electoral reform, reform the electoral system and have another election. And then we have a, a, a proportional a democratic parliament. Then we demand of that parliament that we have another say on Europe. And that next say on Europe would uh, rejoin, would win. You'll be very confident about that. And all this, so the next election is gonna be in three, three and a half years time. Um, the reform of the electoral system and an election to follow it would take another year or year and a half. So we're talking five years. Then you have a referendum. Then we negotiate with the EU about the terms in which we, we, we join. The EU would have moved on a bit. Things would have changed. They're going to use this opportunity to do a few things that we were a drag anchor about. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, we would have learned our lesson very, very well by then. And uh, we, you could see if this was the sequence of events, six or seven years we could be back in the eu it's not impossible so within a decade yeah oh within a decade yeah within a decade so electoral reform as as the platform for uh, for rejoin it is also the platform for our country taking seriously what needs to be done on um on the, the climate issue the point about the climate issue is that no single nation no single government no single state can solve the problem it has to be an international matter. Yep. But if it's going to work internationally, then the advanced uh, economies have got to accept that they've got to, you know, bear some of the burden here because the uh, developing economies say, you know, you're, you've got your, your bum in the butter, haven't you? You know, so it's all very well to ask us to stop emitting when yep. you've done all the emitting and what have you. Yep. So we really have to have a, a just and fair way of the whole international community working together. And that takes a, a lot of political uh, courage on the part of the advanced economy states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get that from this conservative government no. or, or in fact, from a majority Labour government either, because they're going to be thinking about the next election. They're not going to you know, want to start messing with people's living standards too much. So only a coalition government can do it.
That is why electoral reform is the key to both those things. Would you say that um, bringing in proportional representation would change the chronic, quote-unquote, chronic short-termism of the governments that we have in the UK? Do you think being in coalition consistently and knowing that you're going to probably be in government again, even if it's with a new partner, do you think that, do you think that helps change from short-termism to long-termism? Yes. Now, no system in the world is perfect, and it would be a terrible mistake to expect perfection. But if you want to look at some very good examples of consistency in public policy and in economic management, all you need to do is to look at Germany and, to mm. some extent, at France. And they, they, they provide, especially in the case of Germany, where, where it's a sort of permanent coalition. Or yeah. they, you know. But, but I mean, there you get you get grown up uh, a government, which. So let me just back up on on, on this point. Um, I, I don't want to. This is not a commercial break for my most <laughs> book. But it happens that a, that a very central uh, theme in that book is that we've got to try to drain politics out of government as much as possible. Mm. Of course, political debate is always important because we've got to discuss the direction of travel and policy priorities and so on. And definitely in the public conversation and on the hustings and at election time, these things need to be discussed. But yep. government is for everybody. It's not just for the people who voted for your party, which in a first past the post two party system, like the one we've got, mm. is too often too much the case. Agreed. Okay? So if you do get a, a, a proportional system, you get coalition governments, you have a much, much greater likelihood of consistency in, in public policy uh, matters. And, and that means less short-termism. So the answer is yes. Yes, yeah. No, I, I noticed you shared uh, Make Votes Matter stuff on Twitter quite a bit. Would you say there, the, I mean, this, I'm, we're sort of going off track, track a little bit and I'm, I'm aware that you probably need to leave, but just qu quickly on this, because this is really interesting, um, electoral reform, I think, should be one of the, the main things we talk about in politics right now. But would you say Make Votes Matter is, the, the, it, would you ask all, all campaigners to go and join them or, or is there another group? Would you, would you say go and join the electoral reform group within Labour? What, what, where should we, because there's lots of places we could go, where would you pinpoint people or signpost people? Where's best to use our energy here for, for electoral reform? Well, the, the, I think that and think and hope that there is more uh, prospect of the different um, uh, electoral reform movements, small e, small r, cooperating together. So the Electoral Reform Society and the Make Votes Matter movement, and, and, and they pitch themselves in at you know slightly different constituencies. So Electoral Reform Society is, is talking about the machinery, the mechanisms. Uh, and you know, talking to uh, the political parties about this makes make votes matter. As I understand it, is m much more mobilizing the grassroots, yeah, and getting yeah. information out there, and so on. So I would join them all. I certainly have. <laughs> I'm, I'm a member of everything. Anything yeah. to do with that, I, I really think hugely matters because I, I do think that, that that is our that's the hatch out of this sinking submarine that we're in now. That's, that's yeah. the life escape mechanism now, is to reform our system, because the, the, the system is, is manifestly uh, um, you know, dysfunctional. Mm. To, to deliver 100% of the power into minority hands, when the minority hands themselves can be captured. You know, the Conservative Party has been taken over by 
entryists, the yeah. Brexit, the UK entryists. UK, yeah, yeah. You, you would be shocked rigid, and, and people should be shocked rigid to go back to the 1970s, listen to Enoch Powell yep. on you know, YouTube, look at the National Front posters. They are pure Brexit. Yep. They yeah. are pure UK Brexit party, today's ERG, today's Tory party. The Conservative Party of Dominic Grieve and Anna Soubry doesn't exist any longer. It's been taken over. It's like a corpse which has been inhabited by a ghoul, you know. And to some extent, that, that's happened to, to Labour as well. And one of the great problems about, about Labour, now I happen to be a member of the Labour Party, okay. And, you know, I, I, I sort of weep at, at the ossification of that structure. It is so bureaucratic inward-looking, ideological. It wastes so much energy and blood and sweat on internal, you know, havering over, over phrases and clauses and what have you. And the country is screaming out for sucker. It wants leadership. It wants imaginative politicians or something, some organization, some body yeah. to show the way out of the impasse that we're in now. I was, you know, very, very hopeful. Uh, well, maybe I still am, I don't know, but very hopeful that a change of leadership in the Labour Party might bring a change of direction. Yeah. But it is so internally ossified, that's sclerotic, that's a much better word than ossified, it's sclerotic. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think Jack and I were, were looking forward to Keir Starmer coming in and, and changing things. But I mean, COVID's made it very difficult for him and we, we can talk about Keir Starmer all day long. Um, but, you know, in New Zealand, you've, you've got a Labour leader that is weirdly loved around the world. Mm. And she's a Labour, she's a Labour leader. Mm. Um, and even in New Zealand, the Labour Party is still a little bit socialist and a little bit social democratic. So you still have two ideological groupings in one party, which is exactly what you've got in the UK as well. So it's not like they can't get their act together and they can't work together and they can't be a force and they can't win elections. Um, it's just, yeah, you're right. It's just so much division, so much toxicity, um, so many hatchets, so many long memories. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it, it, you're right. There's so many people, I think, who feel politically homeless or just look to the Labour Party and think, come on, we're, we're counting on you. You are, you are our last hope. You're the, you're the best hope we have. And yet we just never quite, it just hasn't quite happened yet. I was, Keir Starmer hasn't quite become the Jacinda Ardern that we were hoping she might, that he might become. Um, no. I guess there's still time. You know, what, what, what we have to hope and argue and press for is to just put ideological purities to one side for a moment mm. and to think realistically about the future. Labour is not going to get Scotland back. That means they're never going to win a majority of seats in the House of Commons. What that in turn means is what they can hope to be and should be aiming to be is the leading party in a coalition in the House of Commons. Yeah. And, and to do that, they could be that permanently if they would really put their energy and weight and effort behind electoral reform. Mm. And, you know, to sort of wake up and grow up and, and look forward and to accept something, which is, again, this is something that I argue for in, the, in, in this book, is... There is no such thing as a majority of anything. There are just lots and lots of minorities who form temporary coalitions to constitute a momentary majority on an election day or on some issue or other. And a really sensible, a really mature-minded political party would recognize that it has to speak beyond the, the borders of, of its own you know, political roots. 
that was the great achievement of uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Uh, one of my um, sort of, you know, uh, secret sort of closet things is that I'm a big admirer of Gordon Brown. You know, I, if, there's, there's no if, shame if, in that. There's no, no, shame. no. Well, I mean, the, the point about him is, and it's an interesting point actually, is that if he had been a 19th century prime minister, he would be an equivalent of Gladstone or somebody. Mm. But the 24-7 news cycle, the kind of heuristic uh, journalism that we have, by which I mean trying to score a point and trip somebody up, that's it, yapping at the heels, biting the ankles of politicians 24-7. He just wasn't up to it. And, and it, it tripped him up and it got him frustrated and, and uh, impatient. Uh, you know, and, and so it all went, went bad. But I used a man of real stature. I agree. And once I was up at the Edinburgh Literary Festival and I had shared an editor with him. So the books that he wrote for Bloomsbury edited by the same person who edited my books. And my editor said to me, oh, I've just been chatting to the Prime Minister. This is when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. So I've just been chatting to the Prime Minister on the phone. He's just finished reading your book and he doesn't agree with you. And I said, oh, I, I don't care whether he agrees with me or not. I'm just, I'm just, the thought that a prime minister is reading a book is just so wonderful, you know. That exactly, yeah. It's just wonderful. That's brilliant. I'd love, I'd love to know where where the disagreement was. Maybe you two will have to have a, a debate or something. Or, or, yeah, or no, no, a... I was too excited to find out. But he's probably yeah. wrong about it. <laughs> brilliant. Well, let's um, let's wrap it up there. So, thank you very much, um, Professor Ossie Grayling, for um, being the second guest on this uh, podcast series. Um, I hope. All of the uh, listeners will have um, learned something. And by the sounds of it, what we all need to do uh, moving forward is get stuck into electoral reform, join all the groups. Um, have, you, have you got a parting message for to keep uh, to keep everyone buoyant? Yes, I mean, I, I, I do think that that uh, you know, dark before the dawn and everything. I, I do think there's a real opportunity and a realistic opportunity to to um, you know see this as a big big chance to reset our country, to reform our constitution, reform our electoral system, to get a democratic government for the first time ever really in our country, and to get back into playing a full part, a leading part as a big nation, a big economy in, in the European Union, uh, and to be part of this historic, absolutely amazing endeavor that the EU is, which would be incredibly good for all of us here in the British Isles. I would love to see the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh and, and, and the English all being independent in themselves, but partners together in the EU. That, that would be absolutely fantastic. And above all, it's people like you two, James and Jack, and, and, and the sort of people who, who follow your podcasts. You, you are absolutely vital to this. You're, you're a precious commodity, really, because by being articulate and, and, and being consistent and being dedicated to, to the cause of seeing a clear path forward, of recognizing we've got to get our house in order. We've got to get electoral constitutional reform. We can do that. If we can get the opposition parties to work together, we can do that in short order. And then we can say, we demand another say on our future and, and where we're going to go with it. And that seems to me to be the way forward. Thank you very much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Next week on the show, we have Anthea Simmons, a grassroots campaigner, an absolute legend, one of my favourite people that I've ever campaigned alongside. We talk about all the important things to do with the grassroots, our community, what we were doing right, how we can improve, 
where we're going to go next and how we're going to rejoin. I hope you can check it out. I'll see you then.